Well, if I was to say this morning, everybody open your Bibles to the love chapter, um, most of you who are familiar with the New Testament would probably uh, turn immediately to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And why is that so? Because there the Apostle Paul mentions love eight times in 13 verses and offers a description of love that is so beautiful and poetic that it's often read at weddings. Uh, it's been put to music. Many people have it hanging in some form on the walls of their homes. Uh, many more have put it to memory because it's simply memorable in its description of this thing called love. Let me read just a portion. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I have no intention this morning of detracting from the beauty and the power and the truth of Paul's words there in 1 Corinthians 13, but I'd like to suggest that it's possible to make a much stronger case for a different passage of Scripture earning that title, the love chapter. And that would be the fourth chapter of First John, where we're going to be spending some time together this morning. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 21. And in just those 15 verses alone, the word love in both its noun and verb forms appears a combined 27 times. Uh, no other chapter in the Bible comes close to such a direct and sustained emphasis on love. We know from the Gospels that John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John in these letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that we're studying this summer, was absolutely overwhelmed and transformed by the love of God that he experienced in and through his relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, he even referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And you know what? I, I don't think John said that in any way as an expression of arrogance or superiority to anyone else. I think instead that John never stopped being amazed that uh, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, would express such unconditional, selfless, inclusive love to anyone, least of all himself. And, and, and I think John would have clarified that he viewed himself as the disciple Jesus loved, not because of who he was, but in fact in spite of who he knew himself to be. And each of us can follow his lead and identify ourselves as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Twice before in 1 John, the apostle has spoken to the essential duty of everyone who claims to believe in Jesus to love one another. And, and here in 1 John 4, 7 to 21, he takes it up again in greater detail and greater intensity. Will you stand with me and let's read this aloud together as is our tradition here at LifePoint. <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, the whole section begins with a simple command, and let's look at that together. That command is, Beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. Something that I've observed over the years is that the intensity of love between Christ followers in a church can tend to diminish over time. And so it needs to be revisited, renewed on a regular basis. As the church grows in size and perhaps in significance, as it becomes established, as the first core of leaders gives way to the next wave of leaders, the first things to suffer usually aren't things like sound doctrine or strong preaching or the priority of evangelism and mission. Instead, more often, the the first thing that tends to weaken is the love between people in a congregation. And I don't believe that it's a stretch to think that this problem uh, was among John's primary motivations for writing, that, in fact, the weakening love between Christians in that first century had become so pronounced, so obvious in the church that John must have felt an urgency to keep repeating, repeating his appeal to every believer to keep on loving one another. And that's the actual literal translation of the command in verse 7. The the Greek verb tense makes it an exhortation to continue loving each other, to keep on keeping on in love for one another. Now, last week, uh, Abiod and Feliki reminded us that in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there are, in fact, four words for this thing called love. There is phileo, or brotherly love, which is the kind of love that exists primarily between friends. There is eros, which is erotic or romantic love. There is storge, the affection that we naturally expect between family members, the kind of love that binds parents to their children, children to their parents, siblings to each other. And finally, there's agape. And this word is there on your notes in its verb form, agapeo. Uh, This is the word that John uses in this passage exclusively. And again, both its noun and verb forms. John's going to make some quite distinct and exclusive claims about agape in this passage. It's a uniquely biblical word. Agape is love directed by the will. It's a choosing, a preferring kind of love, love that rises above and goes well beyond the other loves, love that perceives them and acts to meet real needs in the lives of real people is sometimes described as unselfish and unconditional love because it's most often used to express the love of God toward undeserving and sinful humanity. It's the quality of love that includes one's enemies, the quality of love that, while hanging on a cross, prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Agape could only be expressed by those who have first been the recipients of God's agape toward them personally. No wonder then that John opens verse 7 
with two forms of the word. Agapatoi, or loved ones. Agapomen, love continually. You who have experienced the love of God, keep on loving each other. In verses 7 to 12, John issues that command, and then he follows it with three powerful reasons why we must keep on loving one another. The first is the theological reason. I'm going to spend more time on that than on the others. Verses 7 to 10, the theological reason. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 7, John begins this argument for an actual or an active mutual love between believers with this simple and clear assertion that agape comes from God. Agape comes from God. He is the source. He is the origin of agape. All true love derives from him. Notice where he quickly goes in the latter part of verse 7. He says that because agape is from God, it therefore stands to reason that that everyone who loves either God or neighbor with that distinctive love, which alone is true agape, has been born of God. They've been born again. Their lives have undergone that fundamental and comprehensive transformation that Jesus described as being born again. Anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That is, that they have experienced a a genuine personal relationship with him. You know, we used to look at this statement and think, well, I, I know a lot of pagans who are genuinely loving people. Uh, they're stellar in their friendships. They love their spouses. They're faithful to them. They're great parents and grandparents. They lead happy, healthy families. So what am I missing? Are, are they actually born again? And as an evangelical, uh, growing up evangelical, uh, this puzzled me. In fact, uh, it actually troubled me. How is it that these who don't know Christ seem to love each other so well? What I've come to understand since then is that John is actually expressing something much more precise, uh, much more exclusive, and, and frankly, much more troubling than I ever realized. I came to understand that we can expect to see phileo love between good friends, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. We can expect to see eros love between men and women, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. It's the most natural thing in the world to expect Storgate love to exist between parents and their children. In fact, it's so natural that we ought to be shocked when we find it absent. And each of these loves is what we might include under the heading of common grace. That is, that God has blessed all of us as human beings with the opportunity to give and receive these loves. But agape is in a class all of its own. And if you don't understand this, if you don't perceive this from the very beginning, you're going to miss the point of this message. And in fact, I think the point of the entire book of 1 John. It it is a supernatural love because it comes from a supernatural source. So that when you see someone or a community of someone's relating to one another with a quality of love that is so unique, so distinctive, so above and beyond that that it can only be explained in supernatural terms. 
you know that you're observing people who have been born of God and know God. And John is calling us, I think, to rise above the natural to the supernatural in our manner of relating to one another, especially in the community of believers. But wait, there's more. In verse 8, notice with me that John further unfolds his theological reasoning for loving one another by asserting that agape not only comes from God, but God himself is agape. He is love. It is the essential nature of his being. This is stated twice in our passage today, first here at verse 8, then again at verse 16. And I want to very quickly interject that to say that God is love is not at all the same as saying that love is God. We don't worship love itself. We worship the God who himself is love. And uh, I think it goes perhaps without saying that to, to attempt to make love the object of our worship is to go off in a very unhealthy direction. I just wanted to say that. I'll leave it right there. To say that God is love is not at all to say that loving is just one of his many activities. It is to say that whatever God does, he does in love so that even when he judges, he judges in love. And if he judges in love, then we can conclude also that it, even though it's perhaps foreign to our human minds, that his loving is also expressed in justice. John Stott expresses this powerfully, I think, in his commentary on 1 John. And he makes note that in the New Testament, there are three other statements concerning what God is, what God is in his substance, in his nature, in his essence. In John 4.24, he is spirit. In 1 John 1.5, he is light. In Hebrews 12.29, he's a consuming fire. I'll just repeat that for those of you who are taking notes. In John 4.24, he's spirit. In 1 John 1.5, he is light. In Hebrews 12.29, he is a consuming fire. So combining those three with John's assertion here that God is love, John Stott wrote, He who is love is also light and fire. Far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire without consuming the sinner, but rather saving him. I just think that's a magnificent statement. Now notice with me where John goes next. From the truth that that God is love, John draws a further deduction, not not now positive and inclusive like that of verse 7, but now negative and exclusive. He says, whoever does not love does not know God. Whoever does not agapeo cannot make the claim that he or she knows the God who is agape. That would be like someone perhaps claiming to be in a close intimate relationship with a foreigner whose language they do not speak or even understand. Or perhaps it would be like someone claiming to be born of parents whom they do not in any way resemble. To to fail to agapeo is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father and our friend. Agape Jesus himself said in John 13, 34 to 35, is the essential authenticating mark of our claim to be his disciples. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Swindoll offered this uh, perhaps a little bit more folksy and memorable set of mental images. 
If a hose is connected to a water supply, water will flow through the hose. Unless it's the hose I use at my place quite often is full of kinks and it's never quite certain. If a hose is connected to a water supply, water will flow through the hose. If a wire is connected to an electrical source, power will flow through the wire. If a branch of a tree is connected to the root and trunk system, the sap of the tree will flow through the branch. And if a man or a woman is truly connected to the loving Father through the Son by the indwelling Spirit, the love of God will flow through his or her life toward others. In verses 9 to 10, John concludes his theological reason for this mutual agape that he calls for between believers with the manifestation, that's his word, and demonstration of God's agape toward us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. NIV says this is how God showed his love among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. NIV, or, uh, the purpose of, of that sending of his son is that we might live through him. Notice that. The witness of scripture is that apart from God, we are dead in our sins. There's nothing a, a, a dead person can do to change the fact of their deadness. There's nothing that you and I could do to change the fact of our spiritual death. Only someone else could do that. Only God could do that. And so in verse 10, he goes on, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how we know what agape is. This is the embodiment of of agape. This is the ultimate expression. It has nothing to do with idealism or good intentions or religion, for that matter. It has nothing to do with our loving God. It has everything to do with God loving us and demonstrating that love by sending his only son to solve the predicament of our sin and separation from him, to solve the predicament of our spiritual death. And that big theological word propitiation means that by the sacrifice of his son, God took away our sin. He removed it from us. He removed our guilt. He completely and utterly satisfied his own wrath toward us in our sin. And he opened the way for us to experience a reconciled relationship with him. The theological reason that we should agapeo one another is that it is the final authenticating mark of our claim to be his children, that that it is his very essence that he himself has demonstrated his agape toward us with clarity and power by sending his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die for the sins of undeserving sinners. He made us who were dead in our sins alive in Christ and raised us from death to life. In verse 11, John points to a second reason for mutual love between believers. It's been referred to as the reciprocal reason, the reciprocal reason. Again, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, when you've been born again, when you've experienced a real relationship with God, when you've caught the real disease, when when you have begun to comprehend the, the depth and the height and the breadth of God's love toward you, immeasurable and undeserved, 
you can never go back to a life of selfishness. Instead, our love for each other should begin to resemble his. With increasing depth, with increasing clarity, increasing self-sacrifice, increasing humility. Back in chapter 3 and verse 16, John wrote, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Would you agree with me this morning that we, we can never pay back the enormity of God's love toward us? We can't. We shouldn't try. What, what we can do, what God wants us to do, is to pay it forward. The Christian life isn't a kind of quid pro quo in which God saves us, forgives our sins, makes us new creatures, raises us from death to life, and then we spend the rest of our lives doing everything we can possibly think of to somehow make ourselves deserving of his love and his mercy and his grace toward us. Instead, it's all about paying it forward. It's about becoming conduits of his love, mercy, and grace to others. And then in verse 12, there's a practical reason that John suggests. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Once again, our our love for one another is the validating evidence of God's indwelling presence in our lives. He, he exposes himself, he reveals himself in us through our expressions of love to others. And again, Clarification is quickly needed. John is not saying that God will take up residence in our lives if and when we begin loving like he does. <laughs> if that were true, he would never. What he's saying, and this is one of the central themes of John's letter, is that the evidence and the ultimate test of whether God in fact lives in us is that we begin to agapeo one another. John opens verse 12 with the statement, no one has ever seen God. He used that statement in the opening chapter of his gospel where he wrote, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. In John's gospel, there is, uh, he, John is clearly asserting that Jesus Christ is, is the ultimate revelation of God the Father. In John 14, Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And I've shared with you that, that often in my sermon preparation there will be a hymn or a worship song that corresponds to the theme of the message that will kind of emerge in my mind and, and get stuck there uh, for the week. And this week it wasn't a hymn. Instead it was a song from Foreigner. The chorus of which says, I, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. And John goes on, goes one more step and says, and, and, and this is astonishing, that, that when we love one another, the unseen God who revealed himself ultimately in his son now actually reveals himself, makes his presence known in and through us, his church, his people. God's love, which originates in himself and was manifested in his son, is made complete in his people. Like the completion of an electrical circuit is brought to perfection, to its final intended purpose when we agapeo one another, when we love one another with that godly love, when the nature and quality of his love for us is reproduced in our in the, in in our love for one another. In verses 13 to 16, John presents the means, I'll just call it that, the means of agape. Right about now, if you've been listening carefully, you're probably ready to throw up your hands and say, I surrender, I give up. Because there, there. No one can live up to that. Nobody can, can live up to that kind of love but Christ alone. And I would answer, perfect. That's, that's right where you need to be, right where each of us needs to be. 
Why? Because on our own, we are completely, utterly unable to generate the kind of love expressed in that word agape. But God hasn't left us on our own. When, when you trusted Christ, God gave you the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to, to enable you to, to live the life he calls you to live, the life he prepared you to live. He empowers you to accomplish the things he wants you to accomplish in your life. And the Spirit enlightened your mind, first of all, to understand the gospel, and then he opened your heart to receive it. That was all his activity on our own, in our flesh, our fallen condition with its sinful tendencies. We cannot produce the kind of agape love that God himself expresses. It is beyond our capacity. But the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in and through our lives is agape. Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit is not phileo or eros or storge. The fruit of the Spirit is agape. Listen again to verses 13 to 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And I just want you to see one unique feature of this section. And then we're going to move on. But I think this is the heart of it. It's it's the theme of mutual abiding. We in God, God in us. It's, It's an image of deep intimacy with God at a level we rarely consider. We'll think about God living in us. We don't think about ourselves living in him. We don't see think of that as as kind of a a mutual reciprocal kind of thing. In verse 13 By this we know that we can abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In verse 16, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. See, apart from God, our minds are dark and our hearts are cold. But but it's out of this mutual abiding, God in us by his spirit, we in God, included in Christ, that that we're enabled to love as he loves. It's, It's out of this mutual abiding that we are enabled to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, to give witness about him to others. Paul said in Ephesians 5, be being filled with the Spirit. So there's a a relationship, an intimacy with God that, that we can cultivate from our side. Spending time with Him, spending time in His Word, spending time with His people, worshiping Him, drawing on His Spirit. In verses 17 to 21, John goes to the outcomes, the outcomes of completed agape. If you like the word perfected better, you can put that there. The outcomes of completed or perfected agape. John begins this section with, by this is love perfected with us. And his word perfected in verse 17 means matured, brought to fruition, brought to completion. In fact, it's a form of the the same word that Jesus cried out from the cross when he said, to tell us die, it is finished, it is completed. 
Everything that is necessary has been, has been brought to fullness. And God's love toward us is perfect and complete from start to finish, but as we abide in God, as God abides in us, we can expect this, that He will progressively perfect His love in us. He will progressively perfect His love through us. And in these final six verses, then, John points to the three very important outcomes of agape as it matures, as it's brought to completion, as it's finished in our lives. And the first outcome is unshrinking confidence. Unshrinking confidence. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. See, many people, probably most people, I've never been most people, but I assume that most people, anticipating the reality of a coming day of judgment, feel at least a little anxiety. I, I do, don't you? I mean, you think about the day of judgment, you kind of go, hmm, hmm, ah. John tells us that instead of that, we can look forward to that day with confidence, not anxiety, not fear, not terror, abject horror, but confidence. When God's love is perfected in us, he says that will be true of us. And he tells us why. It's because as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. What's he saying? Because we're not yet like him in our bodies, are we? Although in chapter 3, John said, when we see him, we will be like him. Paul tells us that uh, when we see Jesus in a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to get a whole different body. Corruptible, incorruptible, imperishable, eternal. But that's not yet. We're not yet like him in our character, although God's word promises that by the Spirit we are being progressively conformed to his character. Nor are we like him in our conduct. Though as our character becomes more Christ-like, our conduct ought to follow. So how is it? That we are like Christ in the world. What's, what's John saying? I, I think it's this. I think it's that in our standing before God, that we're already like Jesus. While we remain in this world, while we await his coming, we are already like him in our standing before God, in our relationship with God. We are born of God. We've experienced the rebirth of the Spirit. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God by believing in God the Son. By that status, we are the objects of his love and favor. Jesus called God his Father and invited us to do the same. In the family of God, Jesus becomes our brother, the firstborn, the preeminent one, but our brother nevertheless. And in these things, we are like him. So we can share the confidence before God that Jesus enjoys. Let that penetrate your gray matter a little bit. And the judgment that we as God's beloved children will experience is a judgment that will determine not our eternal destiny, not eternal life or death, but instead eternal rewards. So the first outcome is unshrinking confidence as his love is perfected in us. Second Outcome is freedom from the fear of punishment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So in a sense here in verse 18, John's, John's saying the same thing over again, but stating it now in the negative. The, the love that instills confidence also banishes fear. There's no fear in love. The two are like oil and water. When love is perfected, when we come to understand the fullness of God's love for us, we will no longer shrink back in fear of him. I used to look at this 
verse and say, well, there's no fear in love. That means I, as I love someone, I, I should do that fearlessly. Well, loving some people just strikes fear in you, doesn't it? I mean, really? Some people are scary. And, and uh, oftentimes there re- there's reason uh, not to rush in where angels fear to tread. So in our human relationships, fear can definitely be a factor. But John says that fear has to do with punishment. And that is, fear introduces the category of punishment, which is not part of the mix for God's loved, forgiven, and reconciled children. I think that John is talking here not about perfect love casting out fear in our personal relationships because we don't love each other perfectly, but God loves us perfectly. I think he's talking about the love of God for us and that his love toward us drives out fear. So a legitimate alternate way of of translating this sentence is, fear has in itself something of the nature of punishment, which is to say that to fear is, is actually to begin to suffer punishment prematurely. That is, as we anticipate punishment and we then experience the fear, the fear itself is the beginning of the punishment. So if you're living in fear as you anticipate judgment, it can can only be for one of two reasons. Either you have not believed in Jesus so that your sins are not forgiven, you're not reconciled to God, the Spirit is not living within you, That would be a legitimate cause for fear. Secondly, you've believed, but you are nevertheless walking in willful disobedience to God. And you're experiencing the consequences of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. In a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to take both of those fears, whichever one applies to you, to the foot of the cross. Third outcome is this, verses 19 to 21, integrity in loving. Integrity in loving. I couldn't think of a a better way to put that. There probably is one, but I, I couldn't think of it. Integrity in loving. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love, we agapeo, John says, because he first loved us. The capacity, the inclination, the motivation, the obligation to love flow from the fact that God is the initiator of love. We are the recipients. We are the responders. Some translations of the Bible, including the King James Version, add the word him to this verse. And so it's rendered, we love him because he first loved us. But the pronoun him isn't present in the Greek text. Others translate it, we love each other or we love others. But those aren't in the Greek text either. It's simply, we love because he first loved us. So whether it's loving God, loving each other, loving our enemies, loving our irritating neighbors, the capacity to render genuine agape to anyone is a possibility only because he first directed his agape to us. The essential result of God's act of love for us is that we are enabled in turn to direct agape to others. We become loving. We love because he first loved us. John's already pointed out two lies in this letter that that can take root in our lives. And 
chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 4, he said that when we lie, or he said that we lie when we claim that we know God while we are walking in the darkness of disobedience. In chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, he said that we lie when we claim that we possess the Father while denying the deity of his Son. And now here in in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 4, he says that we lie when we claim that we love God while actually hating our brothers and sisters. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for our brothers and sisters. The reformer John Calvin, commenting on verse 20, wrote, It's a false boast when anyone says that he loves God, but rejects his image which is before his eyes. Verse 21, you may have noticed, echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 22. To the question, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On both occasions there, the word is agape. The late German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by the Nazis near the close of World War II, defined the church as Christ existing within community. I love that definition. It's an attractive definition, isn't it? Christ existing within community. Uh, We might substitute John's word abiding. The church is Christ abiding within the community of believers and the community of believers abiding in Christ. See, when Christ genuinely lives in us, when he lives among us and we in him, here's what will happen. We will be increasingly enabled to love God, to love one another, to love even our enemies with the agape that he enables in us. Isn't that good news? In a moment, I'm going to pray, and the band is going to come and lead us in a closing song. I want to invite you this morning, if you haven't done so, to finally take that step and trust in Christ as your Savior. It's, uh, I often say, not like joining a club or signing a contract, getting a secret decoder ring. But to trust in God, to believe in Jesus, is simply to transfer your trust from all the things that you have used to prop up your life, give you some sense, vague sense of hope for eternity and transferring it all to one person. That person is Jesus Christ who one time for all time demonstrated the great love of God by dying at the cross for you. Saying, I'm not going to trust in religion. I'm not going to trust in morality. I'm not going to trust in my intellect, my my cleverness. Because all of that will go. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Is it a leap? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's the Spirit of God working in your heart, in your mind to draw you to Jesus. So I invite you to do that this morning and, and, and just to say, Jesus, I, I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to trust in you as my Savior. I'm going to lay aside all that other stuff I've been trusting and I'm just going to trust in you and I'm going to follow you with my life. And then this morning, there, 
there may be some, and I'm going to guess it probably includes all of us to some extent, that you're harboring unconfessed and unrepented sin in your life. Not surprising, is it? I mean, we all do that. But uh, John has said earlier in this letter, if we confess our sins, we acknowledge our sin. If we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, that it separates us from him. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I invite you this morning to confess your sin and uh, to acknowledge it before the Lord. I said in the first service, never, never ever hesitate to out yourself as a sinner. Why? Because first of all, it's true. <laughs> I want to be self-honest. Secondly, to not out yourself as a sinner, to pretend you're not a sinner, is to diminish the grace that God has extended to you in Jesus Christ. And to, to, to uh, refuse to out yourself as a sinner uh, says to others, I don't really even need Jesus. I'm, I'm pretty cool all on my own. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks right down into the nooks and crannies and the deep places of our hearts. Teach us to love. Teach us to live and abide in you. Teach us what that means. And Lord, would you just continually fill us with your spirit, continually fill us with your presence. Teach us more and more about what it means to love you. Teach us to confess our sins, to acknowledge them for what they are, to acknowledge the, the impact of our sin on our relationship with you, and even on our relationship with ourselves. Would you perfect us in love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.